Glad you all are awake this morning and here to worship God uh, right along with the people of God. A couple quick announcements here before we begin. Uh, Number one, next Saturday is that uh, Sporting Clays and Hog Roast uh, event uh, down in Mackinac, Illinois. We still have two spots left uh, on our team, and if you'd like to fill one of them, let me know. Um, we need to get to get you registered this week, and uh, and then you'll have an opportunity to to uh, have some fellowship and shoot guns and eat wild pig and that kind of thing. So, anyway, um, it'll be a good it'll be a good event, good time. I uh, encourage you to sign up for that if you haven't or and you want to. Uh, the other thing is, you may notice, and we've beat the drum for this a little bit. Uh, small groups are signing up right now out in the in the foyer out there beyond those doors. And if you have not signed up for a small group and you are an adult, shame on you. You need to sign up for a small group, okay? <laughs> uh, I'm serious. You need to sign up for a small group because small groups are the avenue in this church uh, by which if you're an adult, you need to, you have the opportunity to build relationships with other believers because Christianity, I don't know if you've noticed as you've read your New Testament, it is not a solo sport. Uh, It is not something that we do individually. It's something we do collectively. And it's not just something that we do as we gather together, even in the very earliest days of the church. Acts chapter 2, you remember? They went and they met from house to house. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, right? That's what small groups is all about, is learning what the Scripture says and fellowship and prayer and breaking bread together. In my small group, we have, I think, two spots left. Uh, We meet right over there, right after church on Sunday, and we break bread together. Uh, in fact, I think probably the first week we'll probably have some fried chicken together uh, because you have to do that on Sunday afternoon, right? Um, and so I encourage you to be in a small group. Uh, the vast majority of the adults in our church are in one. If you're not in one, get in a small group, okay? That's your word of pastoral encouragement because I love you and I want you to experience some of the blessings of fellowship in the body of Christ, Okay. And small groups are where you get to experience those. Um, the other thing is, you know, I was not in the pulpit last week because we had our, our brother Jay up here. And it was magnificent, wasn't it? Just encouraging to hear one more time about the greatness and glory of the resurrection of Christ and the power of Christ to transform your life, that the same power that is at work in Jesus Christ in raising Him from the dead is at work in you and in me. Amen? And we got to celebrate that kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, a lot of what we're going to talk about today has to do with celebration. And so if, if you've got your uh, Bible there with you. If you don't have a Bible, be sure to grab one back there by the door. We've got some we'll give you for free. You can take home and possess. Uh, in fact, if we run out, we've got a supply of them in the pastoral offices, shelves full of Bibles, and we will be more than happy to give you one because everybody needs to read and understand God's Word for themselves. Uh, But if you got your Bible, uh, I want you to go to Exodus chapter 23. We're going to pick up in verse 10. And as you're making your way there, 
I want you to know that God built into the national life of the nation of Israel some reminders like we all need from time to time of who God is and what he has done for us and reminders of God's own greatness and, and glory and his grace to us. So as you open your Bible, I want you to answer for me one question. Now, you don't have to say anything out loud, but just in your mind, answer this question. When you think of coming together with the people of God to worship God, which word characterizes how you think of it most? I'll give you two words. The word duty or the word party. Is it a responsibility that you discharge, that you are faithful to attend worship and to stand when Tony says to stand and to sit when he says to sit and to take notes when I'm speaking and all of that kind of thing. You're just faithful to do that because you know it's your responsibility. You know that this is something you ought to do. And you're discharging your responsibility before God to be with the people of God and let forsake not the assembling of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. I'm a Christian, so I have to do this. Okay? Is that your attitude? Or is it a party? Is it something that you look forward to and celebrate and enjoy? Because here's the reality, okay? Here's the reality. The Scripture does talk about worship as our responsibility. Amen? It is there. And you can find it. And I can point you to passages that talk about how you ought to be regular in your attendance at worship and how you ought to regularly come and study the Scriptures and sit under the teaching of God's Word and that you ought to sing and that you ought to uh, make noise with your mouth in praise to God. And we can do that as a duty if we have to. And it'll work until another motivation comes along. But there's also a whole ton of Scripture that presents our relationship with God as a party. In fact, I read the end of the book, and it culminates in the ultimate party. Where we are in the presence of God. And there is celebration, and there is feasting, and there is eating, and there is drinking, and there is partying. And it ought to be a celebration. And the heart of this week's text is meant to teach the people of Israel, and by extension to teach us, because the things written in the past are written down to teach us, right? And it's to teach us about celebrating and enjoying the blessings of a relationship with God. I probably embarrassed myself up at the coffee hub this week. I was writing this sermon on Friday afternoon and praising God and drinking coffee. (laughs) It was great stuff. It was enjoyable, and I want you to enjoy it just as much. So if you got your Bible open, uh, let's look at chapter, uh, chapter 23, verses 10 to 12 here, first of all. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh year... You shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, that they may, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. On six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. 
Now, I bet when most of us think of a relationship with God, the first words that come to our mind in terms of a relationship with God is not rest. But it's a pretty big deal with God Himself. All through the Old Testament, over and over and over, He emphasizes to the people, I want you to rest. One day in seven, you're supposed to rest. One year in every seven, you need to rest. You need to rest. You need to rest. You need to rest. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? This is a big deal. That the part of our relationship with God is not just working all the time. Do we work hard? Yes. Are we to be diligent in our job? Yes. Are we to, to be hard at work as unto the Lord? Absolutely. But Jesus also calls us, and the Bible calls us also, to rest. I have people who every now and then joke with me, and they'll say, you know, it must be nice to be a preacher. You only work one day out of every seven, you know. <laughs> and, and, and there's some truth to that, okay. But in 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 a certain sense, though, what I do the other six days of the week is work. And what I do here on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon with my small group and so forth, that's the, that's the fun part. This is the rest part where I get to celebrate and enjoy my relationship with God. I get to celebrate and enjoy my relationship with God. And And at the end of every week, God commanded Israel, you, your animals, your servants, the alien who lives among you, everybody is to rest. And you're to take one day in seven to remember that I am the one who provides for you everything else that you have. And you're to remember that everybody needs one day every week specifically devoted to the worship of God. And you need one day to enjoy the blessings of rest. Proverbs says, God gives sleep to those he loves. Right? If you need a verse to claim after you get home from baptism service this afternoon, look that one up. Okay? And take a nap. It's okay. It's good. It's a blessing from God. Herta's over there shaking her head. All right. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It is. A nap is a good thing, right? And you need to rest, and you need to be able to enjoy, as part of the blessings of God, rest. Uh, And I need rest for the same reasons, same as you, same as the people of Israel. I I need to have one day when I worship God and rest, at a minimum, every week. i got to have that. So that I can remember who God is and what He has done for me. So that I can gather with the people of God and worship so that I can uh, enjoy the blessings of God's rest, right? I can take a nap. I can study the scriptures. I can praise God. I can watch football. I can rest, right? That's what Sundays are for. Naps, worship, football, all right? It's, that last one's not in your Bible, but, but it's still good, okay? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to rest, okay? Unless you're watching the Bears play, in which case, that's out. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, no, go Colts. All right. Uh, 
seriously, you need to be, have opportunity to rest. Uh, I just, you know, I have sympathy for you if you're a Bears fan. It stresses me out to watch them. <laughs> but anyway, watch a team that wins and then you can rest. All right. But anyway, um, we're built and intended to enjoy our relationship with God and to rest. Remember, I don't know if you've ever learned part of the words to the Westminster Confession. But part of them are these. The chief end, the chief purpose, in other words, of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's, that's some good words. Those guys were smart guys that wrote that. And that is the emphasis of this passage, that we're to worship God and enjoy Him. Now, I want to move on in your Bible here. Uh, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three days in the year you shall have all, all, your, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, the central instructions of this passage, this part of the, of the scripture here, have to do with these three central feasts at the heart of Israel's calendar. And all Israelites were required to celebrate them every year. At a minimum, the male head of household was required to go. Now, in point of fact, what usually happened was everybody in the family went. But at a minimum, the male head of household in each house had to go and appear before the Lord at these feasts. And in the early days, it was at the tabernacle. Later on, it was at the temple in Jerusalem. And everyone was expected at these three times of the year to drop what they were doing and to go and worship God together. And the instructions begin with worshiping God and Him alone. You're to worship me and you're to worship me alone. You're not even to have the names of other gods on your lips. In other words, even though paganism is wildly attractive, and it was in those days, it was wildly attractive to people because of all of the perceived benefits that it offered and the way in which you worshipped was immoral and it appealed to people. God says, don't even mention the name of any other God. Don't let it go out of your lips because what goes out of your lips is a function of what is in your heart. Amen? What comes out of you is a function of what is in you. And so if you don't like the behavior coming out of your, your life or out of your mouth or what you think, it's because your heart needs to be changed. And so, so God says here, don't let even the names of other gods come out of your lips because he is concerned that having those names mentioned by your mouth reflects an allegiance in your heart that you ought not indulge. And then he gives instructions here on 
these three feasts. The first feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's the feast connected with Passover. It's the feast at the very beginning of the Jewish calendar in the first month of the year. And it's, it combines elements of New Year and Independence Day all rolled into one. And the feast works like this. They're to eat unleavened bread for seven days following the Passover at which they also ate unleavened bread. So Passover, you eat unleavened bread. You also eat unleavened bread for seven days. Why? Because it's, a, it's the feast that commemorates the Passover event and the days that followed. When God, here earlier in the book of Exodus we saw this, when God said, you go and you sacrifice the Passover lamb at twilight, and you sacrifice him with your uh, robe tucked up into your belt and your staff in your hand, because this night, on this very night, you're getting out of here. And you're going to be released from slavery, not over a period of time, but in a hurry. So you sacrifice that lamb and you roast it and you put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house at the top and on the sides and, and this night you're getting redeemed and bought out of slavery. And every year they were to celebrate this. And the reason they ate unleavened bread was because the departure was so fast that they didn't even have time to bread for the bread to rise. Now Karen makes bread at our house from time to time. Um, and, and I love that smell, by the way, Isn't that, mm, of the bread rising and all that permeation of the house. And it takes a couple hours because you have to proof it and all that, right? You got to beat the bread down and then let it rise again and all that kind of thing, right? But it takes a few hours. And the point is, is that it's going to happen so suddenly. It'll be before the bread rises. And they made bread every day. Before the bread rises, you're going to be gone from Egypt because my redemption has come. And, and, because, and all those who put their faith in Christ through the blood of the Lamb, through the blood of that sacrifice that pointed to Jesus, are redeemed on that one night. And so every year they're to look back and look at their redemption. This is the, this is the feast that celebrates, if you will, justification, to use a New Testament term. The night on which these people were redeemed through faith in the blood of the Lamb. They received God's grace, were redeemed out of slavery to sin and death, and taken out. So this is the feast to celebrate that. And they celebrate every year. And by the way, we see this feast fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen? That he is the Lamb of God who came and who took away the sin of the world, who bought us from our Pharaoh, Satan, who uh, redeemed us from slavery to sin and death, and who is bringing us into the greater promised land. Amen? This feast is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it pointed to him, and every year they were to celebrate it so that they would look back and see the redemption God had brought in creating them as a nation, but also it anticipated the coming of the one who was the greater lamb, who was going to be the greater Moses, who would lead to a better salvation, to a better promised land. And they were to celebrate and remember that. And the second feast is called the Feast of Harvest. It took place 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the New Testament, this is called the Feast of Pentecost. And this is how it begins. Three days after Passover, they would go out into the field and they would cut the first sheaf of wheat. 
and they would wave it before the Lord. As this is the indication of first fruits. By the way, how many days after the crucifixion did Jesus rise from the dead? Three. Why? He's the first fruits from among the dead. And so he is the fulfillment of the beginning of that feast. He is the first fruits from among the dead. In other words, he is the sign, the first sign of the harvest that God is bringing and that there will be a much greater harvest yet to come, but it hasn't got here yet. And Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. So he fulfills that. And then 50 days later, after, after the crucifixion, 50 days after that, what happened? Anybody know? Pentecost. That is the Feast of Harvest. It happened at the Feast of Harvest. And what you did at the Feast of Harvest was you would take some of that wheat that you had gathered earlier on and you would make it into bread. And you would wave that leavened bread and you would wave that before the Lord. And it symbolized the fullness of the harvest has come in, that, that it has worked through and produced this marvelous stuff, right? And you had sacrifices that they participated in. Um, this was the... Uh, this was the day when the Holy Spirit came. And there were lambs that were sacrificed and bulls and drink, goats and drink offerings. And it was a party. And they rested from their worship and they, and they worshiped God in celebration for providing their daily bread and sustaining them day by day by day. And in the New Testament, Pentecost takes on a new meaning because it's the day that the Holy Spirit is given. And he is uh, the fullness, if you will, of some of the blessings of God. And he works just like that yeast, works through the whole batch of dough. He works in us to fully transform us into something which nourishes and transforms the world. Amen? And... In Ephesians 1, Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as being like a, a deposit or a, a guarantee or a seal that he is the first fruits, in a sense, of a much greater blessing that we enjoy now and that we have, uh, that we experience in, in partial fulfillment now, but there is much more coming. And part of the Feast of Harvest also pointed to that, pointed forward to there's much more yet to come. There's much more yet to come. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for us is the fulfillment of the Feast of Harvest. That, that the Spirit has come and the harvest is coming in. Amen? And He is the, um, the thing that we have that we, enables us to celebrate and enjoy and to be transformed by. And the third feast is the Feast of Ingathering. That's seven months after Passover. That's a fall feast. That's the feast held after all the harvests of everything are done. After all the grapes have come in, after all the wheat, after all the barley, after all the olives have been picked. Uh, and it lasted for a full week. And everyone at this time of year is supposed to bring in all of their tithes. And that made sense because God asked them to bring their offerings at the time of the year when they had the most to offer. This is after they've got all the stuff out of all the fields and all the orchards. He says, bring your, bring your tithe, your annual gift, uh, to the altar then. And it was called, the feast was also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths because God commanded that during this particular feast that everybody was to get themselves a tent 
or a little booth and live in it for the week. And the idea was is that everybody relived the Exodus experience and then they went home. You know, that in Exodus they lived in tents and God sustained them and protected them and provided for them and all their needs in, while they were living in temporary shelters in, in booths or tabernacles or tents. And that, but that the fullness of that was coming. Uh, and God had provided them homes and all that they needed. And they got to, at the end of that, go back to their homes and remember that God had brought us through the desert and provided us with a permanent place to live. Permanent place to live. Now, by the New Testament, this feast is called just, in the New Testament, it's just called the feast. Because this was the biggie. This is the one where we pulled out all of the stops, where we went and bought the ribeye and the barbecue grill to put it on. You know, I mean, this was the one where they really uncorked it and had a party. And in fact, after the seven days of the feast, by, by Jesus' day, they had an eighth day where they celebrated the end of it and the returning to their homes. You read about this in John chapter 7. And what they did was they went to the pool of Siloam, which was near the temple, and they gathered up water and they poured it out all around the temple and water is just running everywhere. And Jesus at that moment stands up and he says, if anyone will come to me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the feast of harvest. And John says, the word became flesh, and the word is, and tabernacled with us. That Jesus is, in a sense for John, the one to whom the feast of tabernacles was meant to point. That he was God in the flesh dwelling in a tent, if you will, of his humanness for a while until redemption came. And as Christians, I think we're also still awaiting partly the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a seven-day feast, and, and they dwelt temporarily for a while in these tents. And I think that what's going to happen, and it was preceded, by the way, by the blowing of a trumpet when it came. It would blow the trumpet, and then all Israel was to assemble and live in these tents for a while until the Day of Atonement came. And I think that that is yet future, that there is a day coming when the trumpet will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. And we will live for seven years temporarily with God in heaven before we return to earth with him to establish the kingdom. And I think that's the ultimate fulfillment that we're waiting on. But God gave these feasts as a way of pointing forward as well as looking back. And we have, so in other words, in these feasts you have with the first one, the feast of unleavened bread, you have justification. And with the, feast of, uh, with the Feast of Pentecost, you have the coming of the Spirit and you have sanctification that proceeds as a result where the Holy Spirit works through your life. And then we're anticipating a day when we have redemption where Jesus 
blows the horn through the archangel, right? He tells that archangel, blow that sucker. And then they, it blows, and the Lord descends, and he gathers in his people. And temporarily for a while, they live with him in heaven, and then we return home to here to establish the kingdom. And we're waiting for that. Now, if you haven't noticed, I haven't addressed yet a couple of verses in this text. Uh, and let me address them now here real quickly. First, I, and I just think that, I think that as you read this text, what you'll see is that there are three things that the Scripture points out to us about how we are to worship God. First, we're to worship God continually. Continually. There was regular worship every week. Every Sabbath was a worship day. Every feast that you had was a worship day or a worship week that was a a more special celebration of the relationship that you had with God. And they were reminded every week and at the beginning of every season that God loved them, that he had poured out his grace on them and made them his people. And they were to celebrate and enjoy their relationship with God every week, every month, every season, every year, forever. They were to celebrate and enjoy their relationship with God continually. But in addition to that, we need to worship God sacrificially. Verse 15, it says, No one is to appear before me empty-handed. And in verse 18, God says, Don't leave any fat on the altar until morning. Now, we think of fat normally as the unhealthy part. But in those days, this is how they thought of it. Fat is flavor, man. And, and they were not to leave the juiciest, best, tastiest part of it behind. They were to enjoy it, and they were to sacrifice all of it uh, to the Lord. In verse 19, God says, bring the best of the first fruits of your harvest. In other words, go through and pick out the very best of what you have. You know, David picks up this principle in, I believe it's Second uh, Samuel, uh, where he needs to offer a sacrifice for his sin. And he goes to acquire the things he needs for sacrifice, and the guy he's trying to get it from offers to just give it to him. And he says, and this is a true principle that still holds, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And so in addition to worshiping God continually, there's an aspect of sacrifice that is expected and required as well. That we give to the Lord not the leftover, but the very best off the top of what we have. The very best of what we have, not the leftover and the least. And in addition, we have to worship God righteously. On verse 18, second half of verse 19, God points out the importance of being holy and being untainted by sin. And that's the reason he says, don't offer any leavened bread on the altar, because leaven symbolized the coming of the Spirit and the working of, of his presence out through your life, but it also symbolized in, in other contexts the reality of sin and how sin permeates through our whole bodies and through our whole life. He says, you're to offer me unleavened bread only on my altar. Now, they did have at the, at the, um, 
at the Feast of Harvest, they did have leavened bread, but they waved it before the Lord. They didn't offer it on the altar because only untainted sacrifices are permissible. And if you're to be a living sacrifice, as Romans tells us, then you have to be untainted by sin. And you couldn't cook a young goat in its mother's milk because that was a pagan fertility practice designed to ensure the ongoing fertility of you and your spouse and your house and all the rest of that. And you couldn't do that. And God is saying, look, you can't mix in with my worship anything from outside that just seems like a good idea to you. I have a way I want to be worshipped, and it's in holiness and in truth. And you can't bring into my worship something from outside, something worldly, something pagan. Now, in these three feasts, what we have is the gospel message presented. We have a real concrete way that's connected to the calendar and the harvest, but that's not really an accident. You know, think about how many times Jesus compared the coming of the kingdom of God to the harvest and to farming. And the farmer goes out to sow his seed. And, and all of the parables that he tells about the harvest and the coming of the harvest and how the angels are going to gather in the harvest and all of the harvest that is connected with that, all of these things are not accidental. And in Passover, we see that we're delivered from slavery to sin and death and Satan when we trust in the blood of the Lamb. And he passes over our sin and does not put us to death for it. And then we receive the sanctifying presence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit who sustains us and provides every day for our daily needs. And finally, we're all going to be gathered in one day to a big party with Jesus. And since these things are true, don't you think that all of our worship ought to magnify and celebrate God's grace to us? It all points to Him. It's all meant to point to Him. It's all given to point to Him. And it's meant to remind us and teach us to celebrate and to party and to not look at worship as something we do because we must, but to look at it as something we do because we are allowed to. It is a privilege because we have been redeemed and bought by the blood of the Lamb into relationship with God. And we get to celebrate that relationship that we have, which is not native to us, but which God brought us into by His grace. Amen? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate some more. So Tony, if you and the band would come up while I pray, let's celebrate together. God, our Father, I thank you for these feasts and this instruction that we have about the Sabbath and, and this passage of Scripture, which reminds us that our relationship with you is is not simply a responsibility we just charge it is also a privilege that we enjoy and celebrate and have ample reason to give testimony to your greatness and goodness and glory and grace father we are undeserving and ill-deserving of your grace and your mercy and you have lavished it on us in Christ and given us your Holy Spirit to transform us. And we are looking forward to that day when we feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb until the kingdom comes. And Father, we pray that we would indeed celebrate you 
as best as we can, with the best that we have, that we might bring you honor and worship. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.